This morning we are in week four of our Hustle and Hush series where we are trying to rid ourselves of this hustle. We're trying to rid ourselves of what we've come with in this world, what the world says we need to accomplish things, and instead what the Spirit has said You know what, this is a better way to do things. The stillness of your heart, the stillness of your spirit, the stillness of the way things are in Christ. And he has invited us into that. And we continue to reject it. We continue to push him away in those ways. We're reading through one chapter of Romans, what I believe is the most important chapter of Romans as Paul starts to unpack what it means to be a believer. Verses two through four revealed how the Holy Spirit liberates us through Christ. We looked at that the very first week. How does the Spirit do it? And then two weeks uh, after that, or weeks two and three, we read through verses five through 17 and it tells us what the Holy Spirit gives us as He liberates us. So how does he do it and what does he give us? And those arguments have finished now. Paul is now writing to his crescendo. He's writing to the end of the chapter where he is really driving his point home. He's really telling people, listen, this is how we're going to live in Christ now. This is how the Spirit has brought us into a new kind of living And as we follow the arguments of these verses, we saw an exhilarating intensification of hope culminating in the cry of Abba, Father. Now in verses 17 and 18, Paul contrasts this rising hope with the inescapable reality of the pain of human existence and declares that our pain is really not worthy to be compared with the coming glory. Let me read verses 18 through 25 this morning as we continue, it says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it patiently. We ended last week speaking on hope. We ended last week talking about what suffering brings. We were intensified in the spirit. We were moving in the spirit And how that hope now transforms us. How we can live now in a new life. But Paul is now starting to contrast that hope that we have with the inescapable reality of our human existence. He says we can't even compare our hope to our suffering. The the things aren't even the same. We might be able to compare a glass of water to the ocean. 
We know that the, the, they're both water, but the size of each is inescapable. It's incomprehensible if we go from a glass of water to the ocean. Paul's saying we can't even compare hope and sufferings. They're not even in the same category. It defies your expectations. What you're going through now doesn't even compare. We can't even put it in the same context of the glory that awaits you. And so therefore, you need to have hope. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is an astounding statement. And what's even more astounding is that Paul should really apply it to himself. When his ship was not sinking or he was not being stoned or robbed or he was being whipped to within an inch of his life or thrown in jail. He wasn't speaking poetically when he told the Galatians, from now on, let no one cause me trouble for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He had been whipped and burned and bled and stoned and capsized and thrown in jail and persecuted and mocked. And he says, whatever I'm going through now, it's not even in the same category as to what's coming to us next. It's nothing compared to what everyone else is going through. Now, some believers down through the ages have even had it worse than Paul. Paul maybe got off a little bit easy in Acts, where he was able to uh, um, survive most of this stuff. But nowadays, most Christians will not be uh, tried to such lengths in the course of their lives of their faith in Christ. Although in the current church, over 200 Christians lose their lives daily due to persecution, which is an extreme form of present sufferings. No matter what we have gone through or are presently going through or will go through, the sum total is not worth comparing with the glory that awaits us. And so what must this glory be like? When C.S. Lewis preached the sermon, The Weight of Glory, in the Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford on June 8, 1941, he gave an eloquent an explanation as has ever been given. And he, in his homily, he noted that the promises of Scripture may be reduced to five headings. We shall be with Christ. We shall be like Him. We shall have glory. We shall be feasted. And we will have some official position in the universe. And so as we continue with our study of verses 18 through 27, Paul presents the hope as so substantive that creation groans for it. We read these things in um, this morning from the Exodus as the Israelites were there groaning for their God under slavery in Egypt. And Paul then writes to the Romans, the church in Rome, as they're groaning under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Paul says the earth is groaning, creation is groaning, Everyone is groaning in expectation of what comes next. Our bodies feel it. The earth, creation itself, feels it. In verse 19, he says this incredible word, waits with eager longing. And it comes from a group of words that literally mean 
to crane one's neck out, stretching forward as if a runner is reaching for the finish line, expecting that they will win. The eager expectation that creation lives with causes them their suffering, not the other way around. A lot of believers think, well, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, but at least I still have hope. But Paul is saying that believers have hope and therefore they suffer as a result of that because we know how much better things are in Christ. We know what creation was meant to be. We know what the earth was meant to do. In those early days in Eden, we know that God came and said, this is good. This is the way things should be. All things here, this is nice. I like this. And yet we know the story. We know that our hearts ache for something greater, something better, something out there that's fuller. Redemption. And so we groan, not because we're under the stress and oppression of an empire, not because we're being persecuted for our beliefs, not because we were stuck in traffic over the weekend. We are suffering because we have that hope first. We have that eager expectation first. We see in Christ what can happen and what can come of that. And when we mix those things up, when we think of, well, I'm suffering, let me go find Christ who will alleviate all these sufferings, and then I will love and hope and have all the things that I need in life. We get the picture backwards. We get the gospel backwards. We get the redemption of all things backwards because we know the end of the story and therefore we have hope. We have an eager expectation that all things will come as Christ has said, under his authority. And therefore, because we know the end, we have this suffering. Now, from this point to the end of the chapter, Paul seeks to describe incomplete, flawed, and often painful dimensions of life in the present age, all against the backdrop of future glory, that assures believers of their ultimate victory because of God's subjugation of all that might rise up to challenge his goodness and authority. And we know that we were subjected to God's authority. When we were placed in the garden, we needed him. We longed for him. We had this hope, this expectation in God that God had everything under control. And yet that was not Good enough for us. Creation was subjected. God subjected the world to certain conditions. Many of them were not welcomed, though. Many of them were, were, were seen as things that were going to hold us back from being all that we could be, the people that we wanted to be, the lives that we wanted to live. God said, I want you to live in this way. I want you to be in harmony with all things. Here is creation. Here are the things that I have brought to you. And yet we wanted to be more. We wanted to live with that authority. We wanted to be the authority over everything. And God said, okay, go and do that. Everything is under your authority. And we said, no, it's not going to work that way for us. 
But even though there were certain conditions, all of them were necessary for our eventual redemption. And we couldn't live up to him. We couldn't find him. And that's the hustle part. That is the part where we continually fail because we think that being busy and filling those checklists and saying, you know what, this week I've done so many things for God, I've, he, he should just be so happy that I'm even a part of his, his religion. He should be so happy I'm a Christian because I've done so many good things for him. And this is the way we, we work. We work to get ourselves out of suffering. We work to get ourselves out of that pit. We work to, to find a way and yet we still groan. We still long for something bigger and greater and better. Now, when Paul is using the word hope here, he's not thinking of some wistful optimism. Lots of people can be optimistic. Lots of people can think, oh, things are going to get better. Things will get better. You've got to look on the positive side of life. But Paul's not talking about being positive. Paul's not talking about being optimistic. Paul is not in the mindset of things will just be better if you think that they're going to be better. Paul is saying you need to have hope because there are certain expectations that are going to happen. That there are things that will happen for sure. Hope is us living with an expectation that those things will come to pass and that you, God, will let it be done. That as we open ourselves up to this, this hope becomes, I said, God, it will happen. And it does. Many of us pray for rain, but we forget to bring our umbrella when we leave the house. Because we're optimistic that it will rain. Let me just pray about it. But then I'm not really expecting it to rain if I ask for it. We live with that optimism, but we don't live with expectation. He describes a condition that's common to the whole creation, not just some limited portion of it. The word there in Greek means groaning together. It's a, it's a collective lamentation. It's a collective sadness. It's a collective groaning. And while scripture can picture the created order as just rollicking in praise, we, we said last week that the trees of the field will clap their hands. The world also languishes under the, the pale of human transgression and impending judgment. That these things we cannot redeem for ourselves. That as God meets us here, we meet him and we say, I feel great to be a Christian. My life is so much better. And yet, why does Paul have to write this? Why does Paul have to write this letter to the Romans to say things can be so much better if they are already so much better? These pains of childbirth together. These words mean the same thing. The groaning of creation, the child pains at birth. As we come together, we need this optimism, but we also need this understanding of the expectation that comes from that. Understanding that that is where hope puts us. And sometimes we as people of God, we have this hope and we think, oh yeah, God's going to come and redeem all of these things and, and this is going to look so much different at the end of the age. And that's the hope that we live in. But how does that affect our day-to-day -day life? How do we live as Christians understanding that there is expectations on Christ? 
How do we live as people of God? Knowing that there are expectations on this earth, that redemption will happen for everyone. Does it look different for you? Or is this just a routine thing? That Christ has come and we are redeemed and we'll suffer for a little bit, but that's okay because God will make everything better in the end. And here's the thing that we need to think about. When we live our life in the idea, in the vision of the future, that there is a certain expectation, it transforms our lives. It anchors us to Christ, but it emboldens us as well. It's not something that's passive because there is an expectation with patience that comes along with that. And we're going to describe what patience means here in just a second. But it's this expectation that we are longing for something. That we are moving toward something. That we're just not sitting back and waiting in patience. We're not just waiting for all of earth to be redeemed. We are longing for it and we're actively seeking that out. As in verse 20, hope describes the sure expectation of what God's purposes to accomplish. Nothing is more certain or secure for a believer than adoption and bodily redemption. And such hope is part of the threefold possession every gospel believer receives. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith, hope, and love. However, imperfectly, they appropriate and live them out. It is the conviction in our mind and our soul when we are saved that we have faith, hope, and love. But a little bit of clarification is needed. There seems to be a contradiction. Believers have this glorious, what Paul said, the first fruits of the Spirit, yet they still groan inwardly. Why doesn't the first fruits of the Spirit completely swallow up the inward groaning? Why does creation still long if we have the Spirit in us, if we have the first fruits in us, in the age to come it will. But for now, it is the very nature of gospel hope that it remains unfulfilled. Hope that is seen is not hope, Paul says. And as Paul's rhetorical question implies, it's the fulfillment of God's future promises. If they were complete, the effects would be fully visible. We wouldn't need hope if we could see creation being redeemed. If creation was already in that place, we would have no need for hope. So there is still something worth being hopeful for. The future would have arrived, but it has not arrived. And therefore, hope is still very much in order. And so we come to the end of these verses, 24 and 25, where Paul says, we wait we wait with patience. We expect with patience that things will be done, that things will come about. And wait is the same word used in verses 19 and 23 to denote an eager and an, evil, an even a joyful, a longing anticipation. Christian hope is not some fatalistic resignation to some timetable of future events that nothing 
that no one can affect or change in any way. Rather, the phrase with patience points to a proactive faithfulness that leverages God's coming arrival and transformation into a confident urgency that everything we currently do in his name will bring him honor and glory in due course, even if that honor and glory are not visibly present and do not become visible on our watch in this lifetime. Everything we do with honor and glory, everything we do in Christ's name brings about some change, some transformation. This church, this worship, our prayers, the churches in this community, the prayers of the faithful across the globe, everything done in his name is always done in patience, with patience. But there is an urgency behind that, a boldness that Paul says that leads us to do something. We are driven by that hope. We're driven by that expectation that we know it will come someday. In fact, patience here could also be translated as perseverance. We think of patience as, well, I'm sitting in traffic. I just need patience. I'll be there eventually. But really, The point of what Paul wants here in patience is perseverance, pushing through to the end. Be still and know that I am God. All things work out that way for him. It describes not passive decay, but instead life in the now transformed by what it is to come. As John puts it, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's not some passiveness. It's not some belief that, well, Jesus will be here someday. Jesus will fix all of these things for us. But it's living in the now, believing that we have been transformed for the future, that our transformation will be complete in the future. That living today means that we are emboldened with the Spirit. The Spirit of God who resurrected Christ from the grave. That same resurrection power lives in us. And so are we happy just to say, well, I'm just going to sit back and wait. I'm just going to just be happy to open my Bible today and read about all the great things to come. All the glory that is to come. All the things that Christ will do someday for us. I love Christ for that. I believe that he will do those things. But where does that leave us? If we're not living every day emboldened by the Spirit that brings this longing, that brings this expectation, we can just forget about it. Because part of the thing that Christ is doing, part of the thing that Paul is doing, part of the thing that God has come to say to us is you all need to participate in this. You need to help. You need to see the world for what it is. You need to bring the world into clearer focus. And if this spirit, if this longing, if this expectation, if this hope doesn't drive you into something deeper, And what are we doing? We are redeemed in hope, for it is in this hope we are saved. 
and yet we wait for it patiently. We persevere, we push through. We become faithful people by understanding how we can live our lives with expectation. We long to be with God. We long to have Christ here with us. But that is not the whole story. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, Since we have such a bold hope, we are very bold. God promises, God's promises that project a glorious future engender fervent action, not hand-wringing. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He wrote this just before he wrote to the Romans. The understanding that we have been embodied by Christ and therefore we have been emboldened by the Spirit. It takes us to action. And so we, this morning, long to be in a part of that. We long to be in that place. The question I want you to ask yourself this morning, the question that we need to live in this morning, is do I feel emboldened? Do I feel empowered in the gospel? Or does the gospel feel like another chore for me to do? Because remember, that's the hustle of it all. If the gospel feels like another chore for you to do, then it's backwards. It's looking at it the wrong way. The gospel is the hush part. The gospel is the part that comes alongside of us and says, calm yourself down. You've been emboldened. You've been reached. You've been declared glorious and that future And so that's the question we have to seek to answer this morning in our own lives. In what ways can I now feel emboldened? In what ways can I live in Christ and feel that faith, hope, and love, that journey in my life? Where do I feel the tug of the Spirit on my heart saying, you know what, this has been so hard for you. This has been such a struggle for you. Why don't you give it up? Why don't you give it in? Why aren't you emboldened to do something different? 